1: And this series is in cooperation with a CINDA virtual, brings you thought leaders, business stories from all over the world. You can learn more about CINDA on www.cinda.org. Now, we don't only bring you thought leaders from all over the world, but we also have listeners from all over the world. So good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you may be listening from today. And if you're new to the show, let me tell you what this is about. Leadership Beyond Borders is about the impact globalization, digital transition, and the connected world is having on our organizations and what that impact is doing to the kind of leadership we need to drive long-term success in today's economy. In this series, we've talked about everything from business issues such as artificial intelligence, digital transitions, and data protection regulations to leadership issues such as gender balance and business values and ethics that may impact your organization or your career. So please listen to us live every Tuesday, 3 p.m. Pacific time, and if you miss us live, don't worry about it, because we are on every major podcast platform from Apple to Google to Stitcher and Spotify. And in this series, you can get great advice, leadership success stories that you can learn from, motivate you and stimulate your career. Now, I invite you to connect with me on leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com or go to my website, leadershipbeyondborders.net, and let me know what you want to hear about on this series. I'd love to hear from you. So if you're in a leadership position or aspire to be in one, regardless if your business is international or local, make sure you join us each week, and we'll make sure you take away something useful either for your business or for yourself. Now on to today's episode. Last week, um, we celebrated International Women's Day with a very special broadcast. We interviewed a family that had made the difficult flight from their hometown in Odessa region, Ukraine, to bring the grandma and two children to safety in Europe, while the brothers, the uncles, and the husbands stayed behind to fight for their country. So we've gotten the people side of the story. But what is the political and military view of what is going on? We've invited back a regular guest on our show today. Dr. Jeffrey McCausland is the author and co-author of Battle-Tested Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for the 21st Century Leaders. Jeffrey did a three-part series for us on leadership lessons around, uh, around Gettysburg. And he did that in May 2021. And in October 21, he shared his insights on leadership lessons that we learned during the pullout of Afghanistan. Now, today we would like to speak to Jeffrey on exactly what is going on in the Ukraine. So, Jeffrey, since 2000, has both domestically and internationally conducted numerous executive leadership development workshops and consulted for leaders in public education, U.S. government institutions, nonprofit organizations, and corporations. He is the owner and CEO of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy, LLC. Dr. McCausland is a retired colonel from the U.S. Army and the former dean of academics at the U.S. Army War College. He is a visiting professor of national security at Dickinson's College and a national security consultant for CBS radio and television. During his military career, Dr. McCausland served in a variety of command and staff positions in both the United States, Europe, and during the Kosovo crisis, and operations Desert Sealed and Storm. He is a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, the U.S. Army Airborne and Ranger Schools, the Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, Candace, and he holds a master's and PhD from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. And as I said, he is the author of Battle Tested Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for the 21st Century. So, Jeffrey, it's such a pleasure to have you back again.
2: Kimberly, it's wonderful to be with you.
1: Yeah. So let's get right into it, okay? My first question is, you know, we have been watching Luhansk and Donetsk for some time, looking, and world leaders have been watching what has been going on and developing in Russia. And, um, you know, in these two territories, there's been a lot of movement now. Should we have registered that something more was going to happen a little bit earlier?
2: Well, definitely so, Kimberly. You know, really, this whole thing I think goes back in many ways to the end of the Cold War, and we'll talk more about that, I'm sure, as we're going along. But of course, in the end of the Cold War, the Soviet Union dissolves, and all these countries become independent. <clears throat> Most notably, of course, Ukraine, for this discussion, becomes independent around 1991, it has been an independent country for about three decades. In the aftermath of the end of the Soviet Union, over time, of course, we saw NATO in large countries that had been members of the Warsaw Pact and ostensibly allies of the Soviet Union would join, would join NATO. Uh, and at that time, in the 1990s and up to around 2000, I can recall, because I was still in the military, I was working in the White House during Kosovo, as you suggested, that I had many conversations with Russians and Russian leaders who were very upset about this. And in fact, many leaders over here said, you know, over time, this will cause inevitable friction between the West and a a Russia future uh, as NATO enlarges. Uh, And I think there may have been a moment, quite candidly, uh, back in the 1990s, whereby we might have done other things to have established the possibility, at least, for a better relationship with the Russian Federation and perhaps in doing so, encourage a better democratic outcome in in the Russian Federation. And many Western leaders thought that as well, most notably people like Bill Perry, who was Secretary of Defense for Bill Clinton, uh, as well as people like George Kennan, who had written, of course, the long telegram at the onset of the Cold War in the late 1940s. Then, of course, we move up to the arrival of Vladimir Putin, who becomes the president of the Russian Federation in 2000. And by 2004, of course, this friction, I think, is starting to grow. Russians feel humiliated by the end of the Cold War. uh, And a lot of the history of Russia causes them security concerns. And in 2004, Vladimir Putin will give a speech to the Russian people in which he will say that the end of the Soviet Union was the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century. And people in the West, I think heard that and kind of shrugged their shoulders and said well that's that's okay that's one guy's opinion but uh, he pursued i think a strategy since then which has been focused on three things one is undermining us leadership around uh, in europe in particular undermining the whole concept of liberal democracy which he says has outlived its usefulness drive wedges between the united states and nato countries and and take political control at least maybe not geographic control over those countries that had large Russian speakers and comprised the Russian Federation, or the Soviet Union, I should say. Mm -hmm. And so what did he do? Well, of course, in 2008, he will invade Georgia. He will interfere in American elections, British elections, Brexit vote. He will kill Russian, uh, order the death of Russians living abroad using nerve gas. 2008, again, he will invade Georgia, seize two provinces, uh, uh, South Ossetia, and Abkhazia. Uh, And then in 2014, he'll invade Georgia initially, occupy the Crimea. And then we come to Lahansk and Donetsk, in which he will foment a rebellion amongst Russian speaking populations in those areas, send in Russian forces. And in the ensuing eight years of fighting, which has been ongoing, 14,000 Ukrainians would die. And a process was established to try to find a negotiated solution to that. It was called the Minsk Process. It involved the French, the Germans, the Russians and the Ukrainians, but in the intervening eight years, they have been unable to find a diplomatic solution for this particular frozen conflict, as it's referred to, though it was a very active one in many ways, and finally, of course, now Putin in 2022 says this is no longer tenable, and this war begins with his recognition of these two places, Luhansk and Donetsk, as independent countries, uh, just like, frankly, he he uh, had recognized South Ossetia and Abkhazia as independent countries. Back then, when he invaded Georgia, though no one else in the world, I think except Nicaragua and Nauru, actually recognized them as independent states. And from there, this this war begins with him making further demands that the United States and NATO should remove all the infrastructure that they have created uh, in those countries that have occupied or have joined NATO since 1999, which would be places like Poland. Romania, Bulgaria, the Baltic Republics, move all U.S. nuclear weapons out of Europe, which had been there for decades and decades, and withdraw an offer that was made in 2008 by then-President George W. Bush and NATO to offer membership to Ukraine to join NATO at some time unspecified in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, the United States and NATO were unwilling to do that. And of course, we know about two weeks ago, this war began with an invasion. Uh, an aggressive war of choice by the Russian Federation.
1: Yeah, and and let's talk about that for a minute on this um, aggressive war of choice. I mean, Luhansk and Donis, um, you know, none of us were really surprised. And I'm talking about kind of the normal person on the street like myself, um, or even I have family in the Ukraine and in um, Odessa. You know, we saw that we saw that going on. But then this aggressive move actually into the entire Ukraine to, to take Kiev. also, um, you know, I, I, I'm just thinking about what Time Magazine had on the, on the front cover, the return of history. Okay. This absolute invasion. Um, you know, I, I think the normal person was surprised and, and how do you see it as a historic? And also you're, you're not just a colonel, you're not military, you're at military active, but Also, you're very involved in history. Is this the return of history?
2: In many ways, you might say that. I mean, Mark Twain once said, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes. And that may be what we're seeing here. In essence, what Pluton is proposing to the West is we should go back to what occurred in February of 1945. And, of course, in February of 1945, Franklin Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, and Joseph Stalin, Will meet in Crimea, ironically enough, mm. at a place called Yalta, and basically create a settlement for the end of the Second World War. And that settlement basically acknowledged for the Soviet Union what we would call spheres of influence in Eastern Europe. And you'll recall then in 1946, and actually the anniversary was last Saturday, uh, Winston Churchill will deliver a speech at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri. And in that speech, Churchill will say, an Iron Curtain has descended. Across the continent of Europe, between East and West, and that many of our historians this day, I think, will call that the onset of, uh, of the Cold War. So that's what we are really seeing: is his desire to go back to that. And throughout the Cold War, did we not? And you know full well, particularly having spent time in the Czech Republic, uh, that this was manifested during the times of the Cold War with direct Soviet intervention into Hungary in 1956 direct Soviet intervention into Czechoslovakia in Mm. 1968 and intervention in Poland in the 1980s during the times of solidarity to maintain that sphere of influence. Furthermore, of course, other people would draw the second historical analogy, and that would be back to 1939, the onset of World War II. And Neville Chamberlain going to Munich, negotiating with Adolf Hitler and giving him a piece of Czechoslovakia over the heads of the, the leadership of Czechoslovakia, um, re- returning to London, brandishing a document in his hand, saying, I'm bringing peace in our time. But we know that that didn't appease that particular dictator. And I think most fear, just Luhansk and Donetsk, will not appease Vladimir Putin.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, this is just, it's so speechless. And you putting it in perspective, history is, is really important for us. And um, Jeff, we're going to, we're going to be taking a short break. And when we come back, I, I really want to talk to you about, you know, what's going on, the military movements, um, because we're reflecting this on on history and making some comparisons, um, but you know, what's really happening on the ground and and how do you think the Ukrainians are doing, okay, and what can we do to help them? So for our listeners, we are talking to Dr. Jeffrey McCausland, and he is the owner and CEO of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy, LLC, since two thousand. He has been conducting numerous executive leadership development workshops, both domestically and internationally. Dr. McCausland is a retired colonel from the U.S. Army and former dean of academics at the U.S. Army War College. He is a visiting professor of national security at Dickinson's College and a national security consultant for CBS radio and television. He is also the author of Battle Tested. Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for the 21st Century. Now, if you'd like to reach Jeff, he's on LinkedIn under Jeffrey McCausland. And if you'd like to learn more about his company on Facebook, it's under Diamond Six, as in the letter six, Leadership. And then on Twitter under D6 Leadership. And the website is www.diamond6leadership. It's also on LinkedIn under diamond6 leadership and strategy, LLC and on Twitter under d6leadership. So please reach out to him on those addresses. And this series is also brought to you by Cinda, and Cinda holds virtual trainings conferences, does market research, and legislative white papers focused on digital. Please go to www.cinda.org for more information. And each month, Cinda holds online learning series, and they're also holding their next conference in Mallorca, in may so please go to www.cinda.org to learn more information and with that we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back think you've seen everything there is to see in online television
3: let us surprise you
1: visit voiceamerica.tv
3: today for sports health business and more on demand 24 7 Looking for exciting video content live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. Tune in to the Voice
4: America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of
3: interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: You are listening to Leadership Beyond Borders. Do you have a question or comment about our show? Please send an email to Leadership at gmail.com. Again, that's Leadership at Gmail.com. Now back to this week's program.
1: Welcome back to Leadership Beyond Borders. I'm Kimberly Lewis, your host. And last week we talked with a family that fled the Ukraine, and this week we have a returning guest with us. Dr. Jeffrey McCausland, who is the CEO and leader of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy. And he is a retired colonel from the U.S. Army and former dean of academics at the U.S. Army War College. And he's done quite a few series with us. So Jeffrey, thank you for coming back and talking to us about the Ukraine. So interesting what you've said on history. I learned some things and actually never even thought about it that way. Um, it does put it in a different perspective. But let, let's take a look at now at this invasion. I mean, from a military point of view, um, you know, somebody who's not military like me is just watching the maps and seeing Putin's intention to claim. I mean, we were very surprised. I mean, a normal person like me was extremely surprised to see him go to Kiev. But now hearing you, in hearing, you know, kind of the philosophy around and what maybe what he's thinking, I'm not surprised. And there are strikes in major cities. How how do you think this is progressing from a military standpoint?
2: Well, it's not progressing particularly very well for the Russians right now. That's for sure. I think Mr. Putin started out with two assumptions about this particular war, both of which have been proven to be false. Assumption number one was that the Ukrainian military would roll up pretty quickly like they did in 2014. Russian forces would occupy Kiev, the capital, in a couple of days, uh, and in the entire country very shortly thereafter, um, there would be a flurry of international being upset, the international community being upset, and that would settle down uh, over time. That certainly has not happened. The the Russians are showing themselves really in many ways to be militarily incompetent, and the Ukrainians are showing themselves to be far better than we ever imagined. Secondly, the second assumption was, I think, that NATO would, would basically fragment. Uh, the Germans would cut a deal because of concerns about energy. Uh, the United States would show poor leadership. And not only would this obviously take over the Ukraine, but it would do a shattering blow to NATO uh, in addition, which is one of his, again, objectives over time. That hasn't proven to be true either. And in fact, I think the, one of the remarkable stories about this war is how well NATO has pulled together. And we have seen astonishing things that I actually never thought I would see happen. We've seen a brand new chancellor in Germany, uh, where you are, or where you're close mm-hmm. to where you are, Cinda, Kimberly, uh, who um, has announced a dramatic increase in German defense spending, has closed down the Nord Sea pipeline, which was about to double the capacity for the deliver of energy from Russia to Germany and Central Europe and has done that in a remarkable fashion. And the alliance has held together a pretty doggone well. So, so far, at least, that's where we are. That being said, the Russians have made advances towards the capital. They seem to be trying now to encircle Kiev. They're making significant advances over time, particularly on the coastline in the south, towards Mariupol and controlling the coastline of the Sea of Azov, as well as moving towards Odessa, where your family came from, to control the coastline of the Black Sea, uh, but, but even if they are successful over time in defeating the Ukrainian military and push over into the western part of Ukraine, I firmly believe that they may have sufficient troops for that. They don't have sufficient troops to occupy the Ukraine, which uh, I think will experience, if that were to occur, an insurgency that would go on for a, you know, almost an indefinite period of time, and I think you'd see the West continue to provide Military support uh, to a Ukrainian insurgency, if we should get to that point.
1: Mm-hmm. And and you said you you know with NATO coming together and supporting and and seeing things you didn't see. What about the Ukrainians? You said you said that that was surprising on on how strong and how well they're staying together.
2: Yeah, I think that's been a surprise to Putin. I think he thought there would be an outsport outpouring of support amongst uh, Russian-speaking populations, particularly in the east, uh, as the, his troops arrived, sort of the rose petals in front of the tanks, and that certainly has not occurred. I mean, it's remarkable to me that not only has he not captured Kiev, the capital, which is only roughly 100 miles or so from the Belarusian border, he hasn't, he hasn't captured Kharkiv, which is even mm-hmm. closer to the Russian border in the east, a second largest city uh, of about a million. So the, re- the Ukrainian military has held up pretty doggone well. The Ukrainian Air Force is still flying to a degree, and I really believe that by this time the Russians would have achieved what we call in military parlance air supremacy, in which only Russian aircraft would be flying uh, over the battlefield. And then beyond that, we have seen this remarkable outpouring of Ukrainian nationalism and popular sentiment in opposition to the Russian invasion, reminding us of that old saying you might, you might say, by Napoleon Bonaparte, who two centuries ago said, the moral is the physical as three is to one. So we see the population pouring out, making Molotov cocktails, purchasing weapons, volunteering to to fight in local uh, mobilization groups. We see Ukrainians from outside the country returning home simply to uh, fight for their country. And sadly also, and that's the last piece on how this is going for the Ukrainians, We see this unbelievable uh, refugee crisis, the worst refugee crisis in your family. I know Kimberly was part of that, that we've seen in Europe uh, since the end of the Second World War. And over the period now of about 13, 14 days, we've seen over 2 million Ukrainians depart the country. And clearly, even if this war was to end today, that flow of refugees will continue. We may well be facing a refugee crisis that could easily hit three million refugees and might hit five million refugees. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And uh, I can t- I can say, Jeffrey, I was kind of there on the lines. And, um, you know, the majority are willy- will- will- women and children yes. um, o- and older people, you know, so um, I do have to say. That it seems that most of the men are staying to fight. Um, but the when you when you look at the lines coming in and, and here and in Prague, um, probably has the most in Europe. It is mostly women and children, um, but you know, and they're fl- they're fleeing, Jeff. Okay, so they're fleeing because of these rockets. Okay, and, and that's the that's a huge concern. Okay, we've seen, you know, we saw in the news yesterday um, um, a, a children's hospital being hit, and Zelensky asked. Um, the eu and asked to completely close the airspace because the missiles are not only being launched from russia but from also from belarus um we know that eu has closed airspace to russian airplanes but you know this is a different kind of request and it's and it's hard to understand about this request and and what that could mean generally to nato to everybody could you talk about that a little bit
2: sure I think we need to also understand Russian military doctrine for the execution of an offensive. And I studied Soviet military doctrine, and Russian military doctrine, my time in the uniform. And in essence, it always emphasizes three things. First of all, surprise. Second, speed. And thirdly, mass. While the Russians were unable to achieve surprise, we could monitor them building up forces using commercial satellites. So strategic surprise they didn't have in the beginning of this war they may have achieved some modest tactical surprise of the precise date and time or location where a particular unit across the border but they didn't have surprise they have not achieved speed at all and the and the offense has totally bogged down It's remarkable pictures of this 40 mile convoy just sitting there it shows you how poorly they have supplied it how poorly their command and control is working we have reports. Of the units getting bogged down, Russian soldiers abandoning their equipment and running out of gas, running out of food. So they haven't achieved speed whatsoever. So that brings them to their third tenet, which is mass. And for the Russian military and their doctrinal thinking, mass translates into two things. More troops. And they've now committed probably 80 to 90 percent of the troops they had raid for the offensive. But it also intr- includes intensifying the bombardment against the adversary using Rockets, missiles, aircraft bombing, uh, as well as uh, artillery. And that's what we're seeing now is them reverting more and more to that in an effort not only to destroy the Ukrainian military, but to break the will of the people by just pulverizing these places. And this bombing, this unbelievably horrific bombing that hit hit a maternity hospital and a children's hospital in Mariupol is just indicative of them now moving to that and making it much more indiscriminate. Their aircraft, obviously, are trying to bomb from higher altitudes because we have supplied Ukrainians with a lot of shoulder-fired air defense weapons, which are what we call SHORAD or short-range for lower altitudes. So they're getting they're flying above the SHORAD, but that, does, that means that they are dropping what we would call dumb bombs that don't have anywhere near the precise accuracy. That being said, they're still more than capable and willing to do indiscriminate bombing use uh, thermobaric weapons, cluster munitions to terrorize the population. They did that in Chiznaya back in the 1990s when they occupied, and Putin was a large part of that in the latter part of the 1990s. They have done it subsequently in Syria, uh, in Idlib, and also against Mm. Aleppo. As far as a no-fly zone, which a lot of people say, well, why don't we put in a no-fly zone? The problem with this is that from the very onset, the United States and NATO has been trying to walk a tightrope. And the tightrope is, first of all, to provide the maximum military support we can to Ukraine in its, in its uh, very uh, clear uh, efforts to assert its sovereignty and defend itself from an unnecessary aggressive invasion. While at the same time, not becoming a co-belligerent in this particular war that might raise the specter of a nuclear confrontation between the United States and the Russian Federation, as well as NATO. And that's the tightrope we've been walking. Some would argue put in the no-fly zone to preclude the Russians from flying over Ukrainian airspace. We did that over Iraq, for example, after the Gulf War. That's true. But of course, Iraqis didn't have nuclear weapons. The Iraqi Air Force had been largely destroyed, Whereas in this case, we would have to then accept the fact that you could have a confrontation between a Russian aircraft and a NATO or U.S. aircraft over Ukrainian airspace. And to enforce the no-fly zone, we'd have to be willing to shoot that aircraft down. Would that then be an act of war? Furthermore, Mm -hmm. if you place those aircraft over Ukrainian airspace, NATO aircraft, U.S. aircraft, you've got to be willing to engage any ground radars that come up and paint that particular plane or a Russian air defense system on the ground, and that the pilot has to immediately engage those for his or her own self-defense. You have to have all NATO countries agree on this particular policy because you'll need NATO aircraft to do it as well as U.S. because of the size of Ukraine. It's as big as Texas, and you'd need to use NATO airfields far forward in those countries that border uh, border Russia. And that's mm-hmm. why so far, at least, the Biden administration has resisted the call for a no-fly zone.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's hard for... And I'm glad you explained that because we do... We understand some of that here in, in Europe and um, especially being, you know, right on the border there. Um, so I, I just want to pick up on, on one thing you said before the break. We have a minute. Um, you said act of war, okay? I mean, Ukraine was an independent democratic country. And... Is what Putin doing, does that come under war crimes when he's doing this? I mean, uh, this is just uh, this is, you know, uh, how, what are we going to do or how, how? I mean, to me, he's probably worse than some of the people who have committed war crimes in the last, you know, um, 100 years. So is he doing that? Is this seen as, you know, it's an invasion? It is an act of war. Is, you know, should, is he committing war crimes?
2: Well, it's certainly something I think could actively argued. And I just noticed this morning that Vice President Harris is in Poland, has already made a public statement that we ought to investigate this uh, as potential war crimes. Some have suggested that the Russians have used thermobaric weapons and cluster munitions, which they have, and that those are banned under international law. Actually, that's not quite true. 110 countries did vote to ban the use of cluster munitions. Russians nor the United States, oh, by the way, are signatories to that particular agreement, nor is Ukraine. Uh, Thermobaric weapons are not covered by any international convention to ban them, though many people would argue because their indiscriminate nature or the use of a weapon in an indiscriminate nature that would endanger uh, civilians or cause enormous civilian destruction is a violation of the Hague Conventions, which call for the prosecution of warfare without endangering civilians. Or some of the uh, laws under international law uh, about humanitarian operations. We certainly prosecuted after the wars in the Balkans, Milosevic and others for these mm-hmm. type of war crimes. Remains to be seen once this war is over whether the international community will pursue that for Vladimir Putin.
1: Okay, okay, thanks, Jeffrey. We're going to take a short break, and for our listeners, we're talking to Dr. Jeffrey McCausland. And he is a retired colonel from the U.S. Army and former dean of academics at the U.S. Army War College. He is also the owner and CEO of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy. And you can find Jeffrey on LinkedIn under Jeffrey McCausland. And you can also find him on Twitter under MCCAUSLJ. And you can look up Diamond Six Leadership. On their website, www.diamond6leadership, they are on Facebook also under diamond6 as in the number leadership, and they are on Twitter under d6leadership, and on Instagram under d6leadership. So please look up Jeffrey and reach out to him on his website or through social media. And this broadcast is also being brought to you by CINDA. CINDA is one of Europe's fastest-growing nonprofit digital marketing and local search associations. You can find more about CINDA on www.cinda.org. And with that, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, um, Jeffrey, uh, I want to ask you a little bit of what the role Belarus plays in this whole thing. And then um, a couple concluding you know, uh, speculations on what might happen in the future. So we're going to take a short break now and tune in in a couple minutes.
3: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Looking for exciting video content, live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now.
4: Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America
3: Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
5: you!
3: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand
0: 24-7. You are listening to Leadership Beyond Borders. Do you have a question or comment about our show? Please send an email to leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Again, that's leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's program.
1: Welcome to Leadership Beyond Borders. I'm Kimberly Lewis, your host, and we are talking with Dr. Jeffrey McCauslin, and he is the CEO and owner of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy. He is also a retired colonel from the U.S. Army and former dean of academics at the U.S. Army War College. He's also the author, co-author of Battle-Tested Gettysburg Leadership Listens for the 21st Century. Now, Jeff... Um, we were talking, you've given us so much information on, on, you know, a different perspective from what I always read and think about, and um, get me. it's got me thinking a lot. But I have a question. When we talk about these missiles, um, Belarus, I mean, Lukashenko, what role do they play in this?
2: Well, Lukashenko is a belligerent. There's no two ways about it. And sanctions have been imposed against Belarus as well as the Russian Federation, you know, it's interesting. He had tried to walk a tightrope for many years, though he's, I would call, the last communist dictator of Europe between the West and the East. He had not recognized, for example, uh, Russian sovereignty over Crimea until shortly before this invasion by Vladimir Putin. But when there was dramatic unrest in Belarus following a, a manipulated election on his part and him uh, going after those who had run against him and putting out uh, putting demons, Police against demonstrators and, and, and Putin supported him. He now really is a puppet of Vladimir Putin in many, many ways. But also, I found it interesting as the war began, there were about 30,000 Russian troops in Belarus, ostensibly there to do a training mission with the Belarusians. And of course, they invaded from Belarusian territory, thus making the Belarusians, I think, in a formal way, a belligerent. I, I expect that that would be followed by Belarusian troops joining the invasion. Uh, coming across the border into Ukraine. That has not occurred. And Lukashenko has actually come up and said that Belarus would not send forces into this war. I'm a little surprised at that. And it may be because Lukashenko realizes there is no support for this back in Belarus amongst the population that he's trying to maintain control of, as well as his own military
1: hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, we've seen we've been dealing here, of course, with Belarus for a long time in Europe. And so that, that is surprising that he's not giving the troops. Um, but it's not just Belarus. OK, but it's also China's playing a role in this. OK, what kind of role is China playing in this? Well, China,
2: of course, uh, is has been increasingly um, friendly towards the Russian Federation. There have been numerous meetings between Putin and Xi Jinping over the years. The most recent, of course, being shortly before the Olympics, uh, in which they announced a whole bunch of economic agreements and they, in a series of speeches, announced that our friendship is without limits. There are many people who believe in the intel community that the Chinese civically asked Putin not to do this invasion until the Olympic Games had been completed in Beijing. And coincidentally, that's exactly what he did. But I think they shared the assumption that Putin had that this war would be over quickly, and the fact that it hasn't now is causing them a serious disquiet. I point to the fact that the first negotiation that occurred between uh, uh, Russian and Ukrainian representatives on the border with Belarus occurred right after Putin got a phone call from Xi Jinping. And I think Xi is saying, you need to bring this to a close. Uh, Worldwide economic recession, uh, does not exactly do a lot for the Chinese economy. And even though they made a great deal about their friendship when he went out there for the Olympic Games, I thought it was noteworthy that when he, he Putin, arrived in Beijing, I'm told no senior Chinese official met him at the airport. And he and Xi met, even though it was filmed. They made a big thing, and the you know, Russian press kind of uh, excused this, that uh, Xi and, and Putin would not shake hands And then if you watch the opening ceremonies, you would notice Putin sitting in a box all by himself, looking pretty doggone lonely (laughs) during that particular event. So I think that uh, the Russian-Chinese relationship, while a very important one on the Chinese side, may be a marriage of convenience. And they want this to get over.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. so let's let's move a little bit on, uh, Jeffrey, from you know we've talked a lot about the political reasons the military reasons let's talk about the humanitarian human side of this okay humanitarian side okay because i'm sitting here in the czech republic and And the Czech Republic has now about, well, last time I read, um, over 100,000 refugees in a country of about 10 million. Actually, I think it's almost 150 now. Um, There's been a million who have crossed the border into Poland. There's a population of 38 million. And a total is about 2 million who fled the Ukraine, mostly as we talked before, women and children. And the EU has really opened its arms and um, Canada has also pretty much has a program for refugees, but the U.S. doesn't yet. Um, what's, what's going on there?
2: Well, I think this is something that's coming over time uh, because we are going to see this crisis worsen. As I said earlier, we could be seeing up to 5 million refugees in the coming days and weeks. And you're right, the impact on European countries on the front line has been dramatic. I mean, think about poor Moldova, a mm. tiny country, uh, that is impoverished to begin with now has a significant uh, number of refugees, which they are doing as best they can, I think, in terms of trying to care for them. But one thing I think we have to keep in mind is, you know, 1.5 million refugees from Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan arrived in Europe in around 2015. And this was a major crisis for European countries and for the EU in assimilating these particular refugees, which has largely, I think, been done over time. But they were refugees. They were they had decided they were not going back to Afghanistan. They were not going back to Iraq. They were not going back to Syria. In this particular case, I think we have to think this one through because the people that are arriving from the Ukraine may be more akin to what we may recall, Kimberly, as displaced people during the Second World War. In other Mm -hmm. words, they want to go back. They want to return to Ukraine, most of them. They don't want to be assimilated. They don't want to become a canadians or americans or french or danish or norwegians so much i think the vast majority want to go home particularly because that's where their husbands sons brothers are as you rightfully point out this is almost solely elderly women and children so as Mm -hmm. a consequence as we did in the second world war do you maintain these people in what we called in those days candidly displaced people's camps with the idea that that's what they're doing you know i once traveled from uh, uh, Tbilisi, Georgia, to Gori, Georgia, uh, in the beautiful country of Georgia, and you should drive along the highway, <clears throat> you see this vast area of uh, small huts, concrete-built huts. And these are displaced people who were forced out of South uh, Ossetia when the Russians invaded, unfortunately, in 2008. And they're still there waiting to go home.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that is a different perspective on it. And I think uh, you're right. I think the majority of the Ukrainians do want to return to their land. Um, they're, you know, very, very loyal to their land. And uh, I think it's most, most of these are, it's out of safety that they're fleeing. Yes. Um, yes. So, so Jeff, we're getting towards the end now. Um my gosh, we're here, you know, there was there was um, meetings today and nothing came out of them. Um, uh, it, what do you think, uh, just speculation, you know, um, from your experience, what do you think we have to do next? And any kind of, none of us have a crystal ball, but any kind of speculation of what the future might look like.
2: Yeah, there's sort of the great question of how <laughs> and when does this come to an end? Uh, and there's a great short book uh, that I'm rereading uh, by a guy named Freda Clay, which is called All Wars Must End. And he argues in that particular book that one thing leaders have to think through is how does this come to a close? I do all the planning about how I'm going to invade or whatever I'm going to do, but how does this war come to a close? Uh, and he actually, using a lot of historical analysis, criticizes most leaders for not thinking that through. How does this come to an end? I think Vladimir Putin's uh, synopsis of how this was going to come to an end have been proved very false, you know, uh, and unfortunately that is causing him enormous disquiet and frustration at the moment. We know basic laws of negotiation are when dealing in a confrontation with somebody and war is the ultimate confrontation. The two things you don't want to do is you don't want to paint your adversary in a corner. You want them to have a way to get out and hopefully get out gracefully. But at the same time, you don't want to paint yourself in a corner. And unfortunately, I think to some degree, Mr. Putin has done that to himself. But how that could come out, it really can only come out, unfortunately, I think, Kimberly, in four different possibilities. One would be what I call confrontation. And that is, uh, as this war goes on, The West and Russia continue to escalate, and we end up in a confrontation then between the West, NATO, the United States, and the Russian Federation within the specter of the possibility of the use of nuclear weapons. Not unlike we faced there during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and in many ways, I think this is the greatest world crisis since the Cuban Missile Crisis. The second way this could end would be occupation, and that is the Russians do manage to grind this out. They do manage to defeat the Ukrainian military over time. They do manage to then uh, occupy, inverted commas, the entirety of Ukraine. And as I said earlier, while they may have sufficient forces to defeat the Ukrainian army, they don't have enough troops for an occupation. Basic rule of thumb for occupations and putting down insurgencies is about one soldier for every 20 to 50, uh, 15 to 20 people in the country. Well, do the math. If you got got 400 uh, 40 million people, then you're talking a force, an occupation force of somewhere around a quarter of a million to, uh, to 400,000 soldiers. The Russians are going to have to keep in Ukraine indefinitely doing nothing but controlling that population. Mm-hmm. The third thing, third way this could end up would be what I call the deal and the frozen conflict. Let's say the Russians in the next week are able to control that coastline I mentioned of uh, the Sea of Azov and the Black Sea. They're able to take Kiev as a capital, for example. And then what if they just stop right there, announce a ceasefire, we're not gonna shoot unless we're fired upon, and we wanna negotiate. Well, obviously they would wanna do that because that puts them in an enormous position of strength for negotiation. And don't forget, that's what they did in 2008, and South Ossetia and Abkhazia were torn away from Georgia, and Mm -hmm. those refugees I mentioned that I saw are still sitting there now 14 years later, and they could make this into another large frozen conflict, just like they did in Transnistria, just like they did in South Ossetia, just like they did uh, in Abkhazia. And the final thing that could happen is as we put in sanctions and other things and put pressure on Russia, as we watch the Russian economy implode, as well as Ukraine physically being destroyed, does that mean over time the people around Vladimir Putin we're no longer trying to influence him? We're trying to influence the oligarchs, the political elites, the head of the intelligence, the head of the military. That this is going very, very badly for Russia as its economy falls through the crack and the ruble drops down to less than a penny. And we see some change in leadership, quite candidly, uh, in Russia that then sues for some kind of a resolution.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. So, I mean, let, let's hope for some kind of re- resolution and, um, and uh, maybe get this to the end. So, Jeffrey, you know, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, you did this quite spontaneously, and I really appreciate it because I wanted to have your point of view, and it's always wonderful to talk to you. And for our listeners, we've been talking to Dr. Jeffrey McCausland. And he is the CEO and owner of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy. And since 2000, he's been conducting numerous executive leadership development workshops in, in public education, US government institutions, nonprofit organizations, and corporations. And He is also a retired colonel from the U.S. Army and former dean of academics at the U.S. Army War College. He's a visiting professor of national security at Dickinson's College and a national security consultant for CBS radio and television. And he is also a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, the U.S. Army Airborne and Ranger Schools, and the Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And he holds both a master's and Ph.D. from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. And he is also the co-author of Battle Tested Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for the 21st Century. You can find Jeffrey on, on LinkedIn. Under Jeffrey McCauslin. you can find Diamond Six Leadership under www.diamond6leadership.com. Online, Diamond Six Leadership is also on Facebook under Diamond Six, the number leadership, and on Twitter under D6 Leadership, and on Instagram under D6 Leadership. So, Jeffrey, once again, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, unfortunately, this is quite a quite, was quite a sad subject today. Um, but your insights are always so valuable. So thank you so much for taking time to be with us.
2: So, uh, Kimberly, it's always a pleasure to work with you.
1: Yes, thank you. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. Please tune in to us every Tuesday at 3 p.m. specific time. And don't forget that this broadcast is also brought to you by Cinda. Cinda is one of Europe's fastest growing nonprofit digital marketing and local search associations, and I hold co- trainings, conferences, market research, and legislative white papers focused on digital. Please go to www.cinda.org for more information. And thank you, and tune in